Okay, we're looking at several passages this morning. Normally, we just jump into a text, we plow through it, here's what it's teaching us, here's how it points to Jesus, and we get to the communion table, and we did that last week with Psalm 52, we're going to do that next week with Psalm 53, Taylor's going to lead us in that, and we're going to back into that, but we're going to get back into that. But today, we're going to pull back and not look at one text, but many texts, perhaps, and we'll do a little bit more theologizing, if you will, about something that you, in some ways unifies all Christians. It unites all Christians because almost all Christians, 99.99% of Christians do this thing. And so if you're in Christ, this is, you've probably experienced this. And we're going to dig into what this actually means for you. And then after that, we're going to address something that may be a little more uh, disagreed upon in the body of Christ over the years. And then we're going to practice both of those things at the same time. Okay, so, and, uh, so we're going to talk about baptism. Baptism, that's the practice that everybody does. In the New City community, I need to start by saying this. If you come from a, a different background, if you come from what we might call a Baptist background or an independent background, it could well be that you've come from a different perspective on baptism. We call baptism in the New City community a second circle issue, meaning we do not believe it is something central to the gospel. Therefore, members of the New City community can have divergent understandings and views on baptism, and many do. However, the, the teaching elders, that's myself and Taylor, and the, uh, the other elders, don't have, they're not allowed to have such divergence of view. Uh, so we are in line with what would be called the classic, traditional, reformed Presbyterian understanding of that. And you might be saying to yourself at this point, has Roger ever said from the pulpit, reformed Presbyterian before? Um, I don't know, but that's the tradition we're in, right? So, and self-consciously so. But we, we also are a confluence of many different backgrounds. So I realize this may be a, a stretch for some of you, but understand that that stretching is not, uh, we don't think it's a critical thing. We think it's a good thing, and uh, there's room for different views in the New City community. Cool? Cool. Okay. I want to consider baptism for a few minutes in the scope of the entire Bible. Sometimes when we think of baptism, we think of it, we start in, in the, the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1. The problem with doing that is we cut off the first two-thirds of the Scripture. The Bible we call the Old Testament, uh, but it's not what Jesus called it. Do you know what Jesus called the Old Testament? The Scripture. He called it the Scripture. It was the only Bible Jesus had. It was the only one he had. He called it the Scripture. So if we consider that which comes to full fruition in the New Testament without considering all the roots of it in the Old Testament, we run the risk of missing quite a bit. So I don't want us to miss quite a bit, quite a bit. Although I only have a couple minutes. That's never true. I say a couple minutes. It's always like 30. So um, I only have a few minutes, and everything will not be said. So please feel free to come and ask questions. You can email, whatever. If you're going to email me something else somebody wrote, I will not read it. You read it, digest it, write me what you think, and then I will read it. I will not read articles that other people wrote. I've all read most of them, okay? So, Labor Day is coming up. It is an official flag holiday, the U.S. flag code. Did you know there was such a thing? I didn't know there was such a thing until this week. U.S. flag code says if, it's, if, Labor Day, if you have a flag and it's Labor Day, you're encouraged to fly your flag at your house. 
Then shortly after Labor Day, we'll have several remembrances from 9-11, and you'll see flags everywhere on a lot of interstates. You'll see flags on the uh, underpasses, and I think you're supposed to honk at the people. I don't know. Um, but you'll see these flags everywhere, something that looks something like this. Right? So I've said multiple times I don't want a flag in our worship service. I prefer not one in the church either. But, uh, but here we go. So I, this is a compromise. Right? So this is a picture of a flag. What does a, the flag, what does this flag signify? It signifies the United States of America. It's a sign of that. The word signify is sign-nify, signify. It signifies the United States of America. Now, if I'm an American citizen holding this flag, what does it signify? the United States of America. If I'm a Brazilian citizen who doesn't speak a lick of English holding this paper, what does this picture signify? The United States of America. What if I don't like the country? What does it signify? The United States of America. It doesn't signify something subjective about me, but objective outside of it. It points to something else. If I was a member of ISIS and I intensely disliked everything this stood for, it would still, if I was holding it, signify America, right? It stands for something outside of itself. Whether, whatever we feel about it, the flag is a some sign of something else. In a broken world, broken by sin, marred with selfishness and abuse and injustice and darkness, God himself steps in to bring redemption into a rebellious world through what the Scripture calls covenant or promise. God makes a promise, and then he delivers on the promise. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that when God started calling people with specificity, he made that promise to Abraham, and that unfolds through the Old Testament into the New Testament through Jesus and sweeps all of God's people up into it. That's what the whole book of Galatians is about. Now, some of us grew up in a, going to Bible school or Sunday school where we would sing the Father Abraham song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Now, what's the next line? Right arm. So I said in the first service, this means you are, you are culturally sophisticated, that you know that it's right arm. The point is, we're singing Father Abraham. Why do we sing that? Because that's exactly what the case is. That God made a promise to Abraham that through his line and uh, would come one, it's Jesus, and we're caught up into all this covenant promise God made to Abraham and then kept unfolding through Jesus, but it's the same covenant. That's the whole point of the book of Galatians, especially Galatians 3. God makes a promise to bring redemption to the world. He makes it through Abraham. It unfolds, and we get caught up into it if we have the faith of Abraham. At the heart of this covenant promise is a concept the Bible calls righteousness. Righteousness. It sounds like a big theological word. It just means being right with God, being whole with God, being complete with God. And it's a wholeness that's necessary because of the sin and corruption in our world and the sin and corruption in our own heart. We need a righteousness, but the problem is we can't create it. And if, even if we could create it, we couldn't sustain it. We couldn't maintain it. So it's a righteousness we need but cannot create and cannot maintain. So God himself steps into the world, 
in Jesus through who through his life and death takes our sin to the grave and if you will creates that righteousness and then in his resurrection ascends to the throne where he maintains that righteousness that righteousness we desperately need but cannot create and cannot maintain the good news is we don't have to create it and maintain it because Jesus does both of those things what do we do we receive it by faith and that's the only way we receive it with completely open hands that lets go of every single other thing in our life. We say, Lord, I, I'll let all these other things go. I want you and you alone. You may add these other things back. That's cool. That's fine. But I'm letting them go. I'm opening both hands completely to you and to hold on to you and your promise of righteousness only. The Bible calls that action faith. Trust. That's it. That's trust. Trust like a child that says, I hold on to you, Jesus, and you alone. I need that righteousness that you've created for me. This righteousness, guys, if you're in Christ, is a reality that can transcend everything else in our life. It is the new paradigm by which we can live. It changes our past, the way we see our past. It it changes the way we see our present and our relationships, and it changes our relationship to the future. Sometimes this righteousness is described in the Bible as salvation, as covenant love, or grace. But what I want us to see is is that it's a real thing outside of us that is maintained by another. Not you, not me, but Jesus, who is currently on the throne of heaven. In order for this righteousness not to be maintained by Jesus, he would have to enter back into uh, earth, take on Flat, to keep his flesh and then sin and be condemned by God. That, that's, that's how firm this righteousness is. It means you're free in Christ. It means you have nothing to lose, nothing to prove, nothing to hold on to. You, we, don't, we don't live now by the approval of other people. We don't live now by how successful we are or how much of a failure we are. We don't live now by how we look or how people regard us. Now, we, we could, but we could, pulling back the curtain, say the righteousness of God means I live by the approval of God alone. I have access to God and I can have intimacy with God based on the goodness of Jesus, not based on my own goodness. It means I can... I can be treasured by the Heavenly Father, not because I'm treasurable. Roger is not treasurable, but because Christ is, and he's united me to himself by the Holy Spirit. Before before Jesus came, so God calls Abraham, before Jesus came, the people of the Old Testament look forward to this coming righteousness in trust, this coming fullness, this coming work of the Messiah in trust. They looked forward to it in trust. Look forward. That's what all the sacrificial system was pointing forward to something, the the work of the Messiah and all he would do. After Christ, we live now in a time where in some sense we look back to the work of Jesus and what he did at the cross in trust. We trust that for ourselves and then we look back and then we also look forward too. But we, we are looking back. The Old Testament was looking forward to the work of the Messiah and the righteousness that he would accomplish. Just as there is an officially designated sign For America, there is an officially designated sign by God for his righteousness in this world. When the people were looking forward to what would come, this officially designated sign was called circumcision, male circumcision. Now that we're looking back on what he did do, This officially designated sign of righteousness is called 
baptism. Same covenant, this whole promise to Abraham that we get swept up in, it's just when Christ comes, it's no longer looking forward in circumcision, it's now looking backwards in baptism. I want to show you in a second how it's just the same covenant, two different signs, the sign changes for a reason that we'll talk about in a second. So I want to just talk about what baptism is at the top level and then for a second talk about how some of us in our community do it. But circumcision and baptism are different signs of the same covenant. And the, the big idea here, I put this in your insert, is the covenant sign, be that circumcision or baptism, represents something real outside of us and maintained by God himself, namely righteousness. When God began to call people, he called Abram, he called Abram, God, Abram trusted God, um, he enters in, he calls Abraham to follow him, and he enters into covenant with him, and Abraham receives the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, which is circumcision. So look at Romans 4 in your insert. I'm just going to read the first verse instead of all of this, but he, he Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So we've got to read that carefully. And I realize this is heady theology. Like I, we're talking about circumcision, this Old Testament right, digging deep out, down in this. You might have to explain some of this stuff to your kids a little bit later. Parental 101, uh, you know. Circumcision was not a sign and seal of Abraham's faith, okay? It's critical we see this. It's not a sign of Abraham's faith. What does it say? Romans 4.11 says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal, or sign or seal, we'll see that in a second, of the righteousness that he had. It was a sign of righteousness, not of faith. It came through faith, but it wasn't a sign of faith. It was a sign of righteousness, something real outside of Abraham and maintained by God. It was a sign of something real. So it's a sign, it may have signified something, and it was also a seal. Now this has tripped people up for a long time. When I first started thinking about this a long time ago, it tripped me up too. Because we use the word seal in a different way than the Bible does. In a different way than they've always used it in history. We think of seal as like this lid seals on, seals the water in this bottle. That's a seal. That is a meaning of seal. It's just not what this is talking about. If you think that's the meaning of seal, you might think our, we're saying that baptism how seals or guarantees or saves someone. That's not what the Scripture is talking about. Seal here is um, like an official seal. Or in the old days, a king would write a letter, and to know that it was actually from him, it was the authentic thing, he would take his signet ring, drop a piece of you know, wet wax on it, and stamp the wax with his signet ring, and that was called his seal. It showed that it was the official designated letter. I put in your insert what I think is the official seal of the city of Indianapolis. If you get a personal letter from the mayor of Indianapolis and it's, got, and it's uh, saying, you have a, we have an issue with your property line. I don't know if the mayor would say that, but let's say he did. And it had this seal on it, you would say, okay, I've got to take this seriously because this is official communication. Right? It's not written on a post-it note slid under your door. It is official communication. 
What this is saying is that circumcision in the Old Testament was God's official sign. This is important because you may know this, you may not. There were lots of groups in the Old Testament in all the world that practiced circumcision. It's not a unique right to the people of God. Lots of people did it, but God picked that up and says, I'm going to use this as my official sign. Lots of groups of religions do baptism. Lots of them do, not just Christian, but God picks that up in the first century and says, I'm going to use this as my official sign. So you may, like, say, I think the official sign of following Jesus is getting a tattoo that says Jesus loves me on it. Or getting a nose ring and putting a cross, you know, in my nose. I don't know. That, you, that, okay, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that you may think that's an official sign. God does not think that's the official sign. The official sign of righteousness in the New Testament is baptism. How do we know that? Because it's the sign and seal of the covenant. It's the seal. God's, my stamp's on this. In the Old Testament, circumcision, New Testament, baptism, good to go. Okay. Uh, here's why this is important. Most theologians agree, I think, that there's a, this connection between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism. Uh, and this is where I think it gets a little bit uh, angsty for some. It's not uncommon to argue that baptism is a sign of my faith. I grew up in a tradition that taught that. I love that tradition. I love everybody. I love the people from my home church and my tradition, okay? And my First Baptist Church of Bushnell, Illinois. I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful. I used to teach that. I went to seminary as a Baptist minister. I used to teach that. Baptism is a badge of my profession of faith. I now believe that I was wrong to teach that. I believe what I'm about to tell you is right. I believe that I'm right about what I'm about to say. Do you hear that? Now, nobody believes what they're going to say is wrong. (laughs) I'm not going to intentionally hold a position I think is wrong. Nobody does that, or unless you're like mentally off, I guess you could. But uh, it, it doesn't represent something subjective inside of me, but it points to something outside of me, something real. And all that's very good news, okay? First, though, I want to bring just one passage and then look, look at how circumcision and baptism are similar. In your insert, it says Colossians 3, but it's definitely Colossians 2. That's a misprint on my part. This very dense passage, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, which is what spiritual circumcision is what circumcision was supposed to point to, namely righteousness. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. This is an incredibly dense passage that people have argued about for years. Good PhD dissertation, hard to unpack in a sermon, connecting circumcision and baptism. But here are some passages to check out later in this little, little graph. Here's the striking similarity between the sign of circumcision that gets fulfilled with baptism. Both are initiatory rites. Both point to an inward reality. Both picture the death of the old. Both connect to repentance. Both connect to regeneration. Both connect to justification. Both connect to a cleansed heart. Both connect to union with God. Both indicate citizenship in Israel or spiritual Israel. Both indicate separation from the world. And both can lead to blessing or warning. So again, looking forward to the work of Christ, circumcision is the sign. Why is that? Well, it's because, as theologians say, euphemistically, it is a bloody rite. Okay? 
when we're talking about male circumcision. And some speculate, some Jewish theologians speculate that because of where it is on the body, it's communicating that even at the moment of conception, there's need for grace and redemption because of sin. Okay? But when Christ comes and after it gets replaced by baptism because we look back at the cleansing that happens in Christ. But these are massive implications of this, and this is just one of them, okay? Like there's like three dozen in the New Testament, but I think this is a good one for 2022. Galatians 3. Know then that it is those who have the faith who are sons of Abraham. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That's the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So first, that is tipping the cap to baptism, replacing circumcision. But I don't want to think about that right now. I want to think about the, the massive revolutionary statement that that is in the first century. In this stratified, striated culture where there certainly is a distinction between Jew and Greek, where there certainly is a distinction between slave and free, where there certainly is a distinction between male and female, and I mean like value distinction, the gospel comes in through Jesus and explodes on the stage and say, no more. Christ has brought us all into one family, male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free, whatever your lot in life, in this family you are one. You are one. That's, and that baptism points to that reality because it points to the righteousness that Jesus accomplished for his people. And a, a male has no kind, different kind of righteousness than a female because it's Jesus' righteousness. And we are obligated to see that and treat one another with that kind of unity. Here's why I think this is important to us. We live in a world that communicates that there is a fundamental, unchanging, and permanent disunity with people based on things like the amount of melanin in their skin. Or the history of their ancestors. And that that reaches all the way into the church. And so even in the body of Christ, there's such deep division that but that's the case. That is a satanic doctrine. That is a demonic teaching. How do I know this? Galatians 3. In Christ, there's no more Greek and Jew, slave or free, male and female. No value difference. All to be treasured. Now, maybe that's true for the rest of the world. I have no idea how the rest of the world could even work out these differences. It can't, obviously. In some ways, we say, what is the solution to poverty, racial tension, and loneliness? Here's, I'll tell you the solution, okay? I'm going to give you the answer. Baptism. In the body of Christ. I have no hope for the rest of the world, by the way, and do this. I'm not a cynic. I am a cynic on this, Definitely. I'm a cynic most of the time on most things. I get that. But the guys, the blood of Christ holds explosive revolutionary power in the body of Christ as we lead into the righteousness of Christ that he's purchased for us. And that's what's pointed to in baptism, however you were baptized. So in summary here, what is baptism? Baptism, I think, however you were baptized, is the official sign of righteousness as a gift being the way of life with God 
in the world, and it's God's official promise that when the condition of faith is met, all the blessings of the covenant follow. Part of it being the seal of God saying, this is my official sign, is that when the conditions of the covenant were met, which is faith, I will give the fullness of blessing, which is eternal life. And you bear this. So, now, many in the New City community, now historically, both statistically, most, in the, most Christians in history have done this. Now in America, it's maybe 50-50. We apply baptism to those who profess faith in Christ and have never been baptized, and to the children of believers, of at least one believer in a household. Why do we do that? Because the sign of the covenant was given to believers and their children in the first part of the book. The sign changes, but God doesn't tell us to do it differently, so we keep doing it as he said to believers and their children. Remember, Abraham received the sign of righteousness by faith in circumcision, and then, what did he do? He began to, he was called by God, commanded by God, to circumcise the eight-day-old male infants in his home. Well, how did he do that? They didn't have faith, okay? Circumcision didn't signify faith. It signified righteousness and was to be given to those in covenant with God, in household of believing households, those, if you will, born into or brought into the story of grace, before they could express it. They were born into that story. Now, we live in a very individual time. I get that. Where we tend to see children as just these isolated, atomistic individuals that happen to be by accident in this family until 18 years old, and they're out. That may be how we see the world. That may be how Western culture see the world, sees the world. That is definitely not how the Scripture sees the world. That is definitely not how the Bible sees families. It just doesn't see families that way. In the Old Testament, they assumed the children were being born into a story of grace, and so they received the sign. By the way, in the Old Testament also, if an adult non-Jewish person wanted to come in and worship Yahweh, they could, and Exodus 12, 48-ish, in that area, so they, they simply, the adult, adult male just has to be circumcised. Not a real inducement to evangelism, I know, but um, they want to come into the community, and then their whole, their whole household would well, as well. They would, would come in and receive the sign. If they hadn't received the sign of the covenant, they would receive the sign of the covenant, as would their household, and then they are living into this this story of grace of God. We see this, we saw it in our call to worship, Psalm 103. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him or revere him, and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. His, my, my God saying, my intention is to give the righteousness from one generation to another generation where faith and trust is, and, and reverence is, is seen. That's my intention to do that. And not for a little bit. Look at verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. This is my, the permanent set of the sale of God. My intention is to give my righteousness to your children and children, children, and children's children as long as there's faith and trust, right? This is my intention. Children were considered to be in covenant with God in the Old Testament. In this covenant relationship, when they were born into a family of even one person who was following Yahweh, they were set apart. 
They were taught the faith. They were taught to pray. They were taught there's a sacrificial system. They were taught to worship. They were taught the Word, the Torah. They received those benefits with the, with the promise that when the fullness, the trust came, the full benefit of eternal life would be given. Circumcision then for the Old Testament was a sign that, they were, that called them uh, to embrace this promise they were born into. Now, if they did not embrace it, what does the Bible say? Circumcision didn't automatically save anyone or anyone's household. If they did not embrace the faith of the story into which they were born, they were called covenant breakers. It's a sobering phrase, right? That's also the language used in Hebrews 10 for New Testament Christians who walk away from the story into which they emerged. It's the same language. Look at the end of Hebrews 10. It said, you were set apart by the blood of the eternal covenant, and now you're trampling it underfoot. So here's what we see in the Old Testament. God's intention was to pursue the children of believers with grace. To extend mercy because they're born into that story of grace where their parents would have taught them that two plus two is four, sky is blue, mommy and daddy love you, and there's a story of righteousness into which you were born and you need to trust this Messiah who's coming that we're waiting for. Now, it got clearer as the Old Testament went on. We talked about progressive revelation last week or two weeks ago. It got more and more clear. But they would have been born to that and hopefully come, you know, emerged in that. That's the story of some of you here. You were born in a faithful family, and you don't really remember a day where you were, like, lost and in the gutter in need of Jesus, right? You just grew up. That's what I want. Now, we love, we love that story in America. And we love the big story, like I, I was a drug addict, and I was bankrupt, and I was one in FBI top 10, and all this kind of stuff, right? And then I came to Jesus, and he saved me. And I would say, if that's your story, praise God. I, I'm super thankful. That's a, that's a great story. Everybody loves that. Unless you live that. If that's you, you don't want your kids to live that, right? Do you really want your kids to become drug addicts before they come to Christ? You don't want that. Now, the, Jesus is powerful enough to overcome that, but we don't want that story. We don't want that story for our children. I, want, I don't want that for, for your children. Here's a story I want. Here, I, want, I want my children on their deathbed at 105 years old saying, I never knew a day where I didn't know I was a great sinner, but Jesus was a greater Savior. And that reality disabused me from this vision that I could find satisfaction in this world that it could never give. And I followed him, and I tried to love well. It wasn't perfect, but this greater Savior kept bringing me back to himself. That's the story I want for my kids. That's the story I want for your kids. My, I just want us to see in the Scripture, that's God's intention for the people of God, to extend his righteousness to children's children. Kids were always part of the people of God for the first two-thirds of the Bible. Why would they be cut off in the last third? Why would they not receive the sign that they kept receiving? There were all these old, I'm talking about one passage that trips people up, but let me get a running start at it, okay? There are all these passages in the Old Testament have this phrase, and to you and to your household, to you and to your children, for you and for your children, for your children, for your household, all these things. Say, for this, there's this coming day when the Messiah and the Spirit's poured out and there's renewal and all this newness and it's this foretaste of this coming reality and it's coming and it's for you and for your children. Right? Where does it talk about this? It talks about in Genesis 12. 
talks about it in Isaiah 12, Isaiah 54, Isaiah 59, Isaiah 61. talks about it in Jeremiah 32, Ezekiel 37. talks about it in Zechariah 8, 10, 11, 12. talks about it all through the Old Testament, to you and to your children, for you and for your children. The promise is coming. The Spirit's poured out. It's for you and for your children. Okay. You got to know that. There's a ton of momentum coming from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Jesus lives. He dies. He takes sin to the grave. He's resurrected. He goes to heaven. He sits at the right hand of God. He receives possession of the Spirit, sends his Spirit into the world, into his people at Pentecost. People are convicted, and Peter stands up and preaches this in Acts 2. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children. And they didn't say, we have no idea what you're talking about. They said, this is it. We've been waiting for 2,000 years in this sweep of history, and now it's here. It's going worldwide for all those who are far off. That's the Gentiles. Now, friends, would it not be, would it not be strange if the New Testament came and the gospel exploded, it was good news for everybody. It was good news for the adults in Israel. It was good news for the Gentiles. And for the children of Israel, it was bad news. Okay? Some people get tripped up on this because there is not a New Testament command to baptize infant children. There is not a New Testament command to baptize infant children. Okay? I will say also there's no New Testament command for women to take communion. But y'all are going to do that in a few minutes. But um, right, that's, that's, that's only an observation but not a reason. Here's, what, here's the question I have. How would the Jews have heard this passage? For 2,000 years, children have been included. Children have been included. They're included and included as part of the covenant. They receive the sign. The sign changes, and now they're out? I don't think so. In fact, what we would need is not a command to apply the sign to children. We would need a command not to apply the sign to children. We would need a command to stop applying the covenant sign. Okay? Yeah, so that's Roger like in, in intense mode. I totally get that. Um, this is a second circle issue, right? But again, I think I'm right. So I, I can't li- like, I got I to say it, right? Not required to believe this. I'm giving you the case, part of the case. It would be strange if a change of a change in situation meant the kids were out. When we moved to Carmel, my first church was in Carmel as assistant pastor. We had one child, our our son Luke. So this is a long time ago. Now we were renting, rented at Carmel Knoll Apartments. Yay, um, the ghetto of Carmel, kind of. You know, it's like the, that's that's as that's as bad as it got, as cheap as it got, right? We, we and we looked forward, we looked for that whole year to being able to buy a house. We're gonna buy a house. We're gonna buy a house. We're gonna buy a house. And finally, the interest rates, okay got down into the eights. And we're like, this is never going to be this low again. we got to buy. You know, my mom's like, I remember when we bought it with 16% interest in the 70s. So I know we're complaining about climbing interest rates, but be patient with the older people who are not giving you a lot of pity. Um, so we go, we buy this house in Westfield, right? This one t- typical tan vinyl homes in Westfield. And we go, our, we got our son when we were renting, and we go, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be strange if we went to closing and our realtor then said, well, of course, you know, your son can't come with you. He doesn't get the benefit of the newly bought home. He's out. We would say, hold on a second. That makes no sense whatsoever. I'm not saying it's the same thing. I'm saying it's 2,000 years more of that. They would need a command not to give the sign to the kids. 
Do we see any other signs of kids being treated as holy and separate with this covenant language in the New Testament? We do see a couple. Let me go through a couple. Second service, you always run the risk of going longer because there's, you know, nobody going to come in after you. Um, Jesus blesses the children, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of those gospels say people brought the children to Jesus for him to touch them and bless them. You go back to the Old Testament, you realize blessing is putting God's name upon them. Luke's account specifically says they brought infants to him. They brought infants. Clearly, these are people who trust in Jesus in some ways. And he says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as you, and he puts God's name on them. That's a strong statement. In the book of Ephesians, in the beginning of chapter 1, Paul calls the, the church in Ephesus saints. And in chapter 6, he begins talking to the children as one of them. So do you know what the Bible calls your children if you're in Christ? Saints. You may not call them that, but the, the Scripture does. The living God of the world calls your children saints. Why? Because that word saint is just the word holy. It means set apart. Set apart is covenant language. You are set apart. It's not guarantee of salvation. It's set apart in a special relationship to me. Set apart from the rest of the world. Born into a story where you are, you are born into a privilege of grace that you have the privilege of all people of embracing. Now, you could walk away from that. You would be called a covenant breaker, but you're born into covenant. Finally, one more. This is a wild passage. 1 Corinthians 7. Um, this may create more problems than it solves, but if any woman, verse 13, has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now we say, well, of course, okay? okay this is a different time. We live at the end of a story where this teaching gets woven into history for 2,000 years. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife. That means he's in a set-apart relationship to God as well. Why? Because he's living with a woman who is praying for him probably sharing scripture with him, probably sharing the gospel with him, probably maybe her friends come over and they share with him. Maybe it's like women's body, Bible study, his house. He's like, I got to get out of here. But that's all he's, he's learning, like this scripture is pursuing me. Now, he would never consent to baptism, but all we're saying is there's a special set-apart relationship. But the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What this is teaching us is that in a family of even one believing parent, the children are considered set apart. It's not a guarantee of salvation, but it is covenant language, and therefore it is appropriate to apply the sign of the covenant. Okay. I know, okay, usually we say we never preach on second circle issues unless they come up in Scripture or unless we're having seven baptisms, and which we are. We have 11, actually, but four were in the first service. Um, I got lots of other stuff. I'm not going to talk to you about it now, but we can talk. Feel free to email me offline uh, or talk to me. Benjamin Warfield, I'm going to close with this, old theologian. The argument in a nutshell is simply this. This is a, the last part of your insert. God establishes church in the days of Abraham, and he put children into it. They must remain there until he puts them out. He has nowhere put them out. They are still then members of his church and as such entitled to his ordinances. Among these ordinances is baptism, which standing in similar place in the new dispensation is circumcision in the old is like to be given to children. So I forget if I've said this in this sermon or not. Two services, they blend together. God pursues the children of believers. 
whether or not we apply the sign to them. That's why we treasure children in the New City community. That God is pursuing your children. We believe by faith that God is pursuing your children. We want to believe the gospel for them, teach them the ways of, of Jesus. We believe that. We believe it's also appropriate to apply the sign to them, but God's pursuit of them is not dependent on the application of the sign. Does that make sense? There's no two categories of kids. God is pursuing your children, and by God's grace, in our frailty, we want to do the same thing. Okay, this morning, we are going to baptize a few kids of different age. Some are by profession of faith, and some are what we call covenant baptism. They're ba- being baptized because God has placed them into a believing family, and it's appropriate to uh, apply the sign to them.